Welcome to the Christopher Peter Review. The Christopher Peter Review provides original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Now, without any further delay, here is Christopher Peter to begin your experience with the Christopher Peter Review. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast today. Hope all is well. As you already know, I like listening to sports talk shows in the mix of news, financial data, and other media providing potential content ideas. It can be an entertaining way to make it through the work day or a rabbit hole of hot takes and hysteria. There is a clear need in my opinion to refresh the media content in order to stave off the ratings decline as these media giants reinvent themselves from cable sports stations to multi-channel sports media companies if that is the goal. Both ESPN and Fox Sports have apps and streaming services as well as radio content to supplement the content you see on their airways. There is a difficulty in sports media to cover and report on interesting events and topics during the dog days of summer when there is only one professional sports league in America playing. One that the shows do not want to cover. But my concern also involves the quality of content along with expanding the scope that is currently myopically focused exclusively on football and basketball. The media market is changing in general. Not just for sports news, but for all news in general. For all entertainment content to be honest. More people prefer to stream their content or experience their news in the form of podcasts or distributed through social media. Recently, Disney mentioned that the future of ESPN will have to shift towards a streaming model as the effects of cord cutting is impacting how many households have access to its networks. We see it also connect with popular podcast hosts like Pat McAfee. Also prominent personalities operate their own podcasts, podcast networks, and production companies. So there is clear evidence that there is a need to foresee a future with content not built around the cable box. We talked about streaming last week so not going to obsess over it this week. But it is the future for many content distributors. But even if you successfully transition the content found on the networks to a streaming service, do we think consumers will follow along? I am not so sure that cable's issue with cord cutting is the sole problem. Quality of content maybe. Recently, Former ESPN host Dan LeBetard remarked that FS1 giving controversial host Craig Carton a promotion was an indictment on the industry because a non-white would not have received the same second chance that Carton enjoyed. Now, there are many people that make things about race in order to appear like they are an ally of the class of victim or to get clicks or likes. Not that I disagree wholeheartedly about the idea that minorities have a tougher shake in our society. But I think it is a little late to make this argument because this is not his second chance really. That was given to Carton by the fan in New York, where Carton to his credit tried to atone for his sins and worked to be a leading radio show in the biggest media market in America. I think he could legitimately gripe that why is FS1 giving a national show to a regional radio host and it still feels like a regional radio show but on television not the radio. The show is not doing well in the ratings as viewers would expect. I think the style and tone of the show is entertaining if you hear it but not as pleasant watching it. Maybe it will get better over time. Still early. Carton did not win the radio markets overnight. So now focusing solely on the show may help it evolve. But the network has a major hole in the front of its lineup. While the morning show ratings are not strong, one of its top performing shows lost one of its notable co-hosts, as NFL great Shannon Sharp is no longer employed by the network. Obviously, the undisputed show is FS1 response to ESPN's more popular first take. First take can be equal parts funny, insightful, nuanced, and annoying throughout the two hours it is on the air, undisputed is more two hosts shouting at each other and betting cases of diet soda, which hopefully the tab is settled. But I do feel that undisputed allows their discussions to go a bit further and can lead to some poignant points once the host's initial emotions relax a bit. 
Debate shows can be entertaining. Especially when you have two people who sincerely are on different sides of an issue and have a set of facts, evidence, and data to back up their claims. Not just attacking the other side for past wrong picks, personal fan biases, or hysteria. But there is a reason why people generally do not watch political debates past the first. Because after a certain point, there is no real debate. Just a convoluted broadcast of hysteria, petulance, and name-calling. Again, I think these shows are extremely hard to do at times because you have to deal with ever-evolving stories with new pieces of information released that may have helped one host or the other if dropped during their live broadcasts. But do fans really want to watch essentially 10 to 12 hours of this until the actual broadcasts of events or news style coverage? Especially when every show is talking about the same topics, the same points of view, simply reiterating the collective network views from one show to the next until it is time for Sports Center or NASCAR Race Hub. And do we really learn much from the format of these shows? Again, while I do enjoy it at times throughout the day, I feel like I learn more about topics by simply listening to a sports podcast, which goes more in depth. Even the host's own podcasts are more enjoyable than the shows themselves. Largely because I believe you get to hear a more in-depth discussion many times around a topic, which is always a benefit of radio or a podcast compared to the television model, which needs a commercial every two minutes. Now, streaming will eliminate the commercials, although many seem poised to reintroduce commercials unless you pay even more. Something I discussed last week. Now, to be fair, FS1 is not the only network struggling to provide an attractive morning option for sports viewers, which may be a difficult problem regardless of brand. ESPN once had a pair that entertained the masses for almost two decades straight before the continual revolving door of hosts in the morning that we are currently seeing. While each may have their own individual appeal and likability factors, the show just fails to meet expectations. Individually, Max Kellerman, Jay Williams, and Keyshawn Johnson could be entertaining. But maybe they are more suitable for podcast-style shows on the network than a morning show. Interestingly, you have one network bringing a radio guy in to do a television show and the competitor is using traditional television guys to compete on radio. Both not doing so well in terms of retaining the attention of fans. Again it might just be the nature of the beast. I believe a good morning show gives the audience a complete overview of what happened throughout the world of sports. Not just the main attraction. And I think we need to see more shows that talk about a broader range of sports than simply the NFL and the NBA. I get that football is king and I do like to hear football talk all year long. But I also like hearing what is going on with our nation's pastime, also known as baseball. Maybe the world leader in sports can talk about the world's most popular sport on featured shows. Although it does provide soccer content on its streaming service. The Stanley Cup came and went without much discussion on the network other than SportsCenter clips, before obsessing over every quote from the NBA Finals and projecting the potential suspension for superstar Ja Morant. One suggestion I would have for some of these networks is rather than having every show discuss the same talking points and making the same arguments, maybe consider having unique discussions throughout the day. Having personalities give a take on your morning show, then give the same take on their show two hours later, and then make an appearance later to give the same view, maybe of content that is not repetitive. At some point it seems like propaganda because there is never real debate just people speaking the same points of the argument at different volumes. Even if there are moments of disagreement, there is a rush to find common ground. Maybe include more journalistic style shows after the debate shows. I know many of the sports journalists that made shows like Outside the Lines Interesting are no longer there. But I do think we can elevate sports content a bit. But I think rather than hearing the same arguments and points of view all day long, give the audience different content. Cover more sports and provide better analysis. That is idealistic I know. We will continue to get clickbait.
unless we click off the remote and listen to a podcast instead. Now let us talk about the interesting news reports coming from the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict. I have never been in any military. But I assume that an important aspect of winning any conflict is having your own forces rally around the common objective, convincing your allies to play a key role in the pursuit, and having a justified and legal goal in the first place. Russia is clearly failing in all three areas. I think we can agree with the sentiment that the soldiers are not convinced by the argument Russian President Vladimir Putin made to invade its neighbor. They seem to know they are doing something wrong but probably feel like they have no choice. Their goal and objective of annexing Ukraine back into the fold is not justifiable and illegal. After getting away with taking Crimea and other lands nearly a decade ago, they continue their illegal pursuit of returning a land that they feel is part of Russia when it has not been for quite some time. Recently, we see that there is a break between Russian military leaders and the leadership of a key private force supporting the Russian effort, which now wants to overthrow the Russian military leadership and reportedly is heading towards Moscow. From what I read, the reason for this change of heart was increased control the Russian military was taking over private forces and the perceived improper treatment that was blamed for the major loss of life suffered by this group, who put the responsibility at the hands of those leading and coordinating the Russian invasion strategy. For those of us not fully aware of what the Wagner Group is. The Wagner Group is a paramilitary organization. A private military company providing mercenaries for hire and other services that a nation might want to outsource rather than deal with diplomatic costs or to circumvent sanctions. To be fair, Russia is not the only nation that hires these types of companies. Wagner is well known in that region because of previous work in Ukraine. Conveniently, the new situation provides a distraction to the Russian regime, who now have to not only concern themselves with the fight inside Ukraine, but potential uprisings inside its own border. Are they stretched too thin to deal with both situations at the same time? They have proven so far they lack the capability that you would expect from a modern military. So one can reasonably question if this is a point in the conflict that can bring this to an end if handled properly. At the same time, we must worry that Russia may act rashly and escalate the situation beyond where it ever should go. We know that Russia could care less about their soldiers, people and anything other than saving face and achieving their objective of restoring its distorted view of how the world should look like. The obvious fear from the outside perspective is that Russia may seek to end this conflict with nuclear weapons. No counteroffensive from Ukraine would withstand that. Now, the uprising has ended after a day, due to Belarus intervening and securing an agreement to take in the leader of the Wagner Group, while his soldiers become contracted with the Russian military. The situation appears to be settled. An uprising is not really a sign that things are going well. At the same time, the event lasted a day. After all the complaints about improper treatment of soldiers, lack of ammunition and resources provided to soldiers and his unit, and the need for removal of the Russian military establishment, the same man called it off and accepted exile 24 hours later. I am not sure that lacking ammunition is a sign of having the potential to overthrow a nuclear power. Just saying. Who knows what will happen going forward. Ukraine is seeking to exploit this with claims of chaos in the Russian government. Let's see if the chaos will help their planned counteroffensive or will it just continue this path of what seems like a stalemate so far. Welcome to the CRC Conversation on the Christopher Peter Review, where we discuss leading current events impacting our public policy and the happenings in our political system. In this edition, I'm going to continue our discussion on the importance of free speech and the efforts global leaders are taking in attempting to regulate speech. There is a legitimate need to rein in hate speech and disinformation. There are valid concerns with how some are trying to reduce and eliminate hate speech, misinformation, and disinformation. But so many people claim everything is hate speech that they disagree with and do not want to make a substantive argument against. 
The topic of misinformation and disinformation is quite comical at this point because so much of what is claimed to be misinformation in the recent past is being proven accurate and correct. Should the topic be called inconvenient truths instead of disinformation or misinformation? Let us start with defining some of the terms. So we are not misinformed. Disinformation is the act of purposefully passing off something that is not true as the truth. Misinformation is the accidental act of passing off something you thought was true but were wrong. I think we can all agree that you should not put anything out there that you know is patently false. That is why I focus greatly on presenting content that is based on facts, data, and available evidence. I do think we should make sure that we do a basic internet search to check the facts behind the content we release. The issue I take with this topic is that what we argue over being either misinformation or disinformation are topics not completely settled or resolved. For instance, we did not know what caused the outbreak of the coronavirus, but people would label any statement as disinformation or misinformation simply because they disagreed. Not that they had proof that the statement was factually wrong, but because they disagreed with the person or the point of view was inconvenient for them for some reason. I am not sure why so many on the left were so appalled that people would believe that a virus was released from a lab, which is much more of a plausible explanation than the racist idea that people ate bats. Neither side knew for sure, but to attempt to completely silence and cancel people because they did not think a pandemic was caused by digesting infected bats was extreme and radical. You may disagree with a position. But by all means counter the argument with a valid counterargument. And what happens when someone claims that something is either misinformation or disinformation and then is proven wrong? Because at that point, they are now proven to be the source of disinformation or misinformation and not the person they accused. If we are supposed to believe that misinformation and disinformation are so dangerous to society and life as we know it, then should a person who is later proven to be wrong bear the same consequences placed on the initial person accused? The gut reaction for many is well the person was wrong. But that raises the question of how do we determine who gets to be wrong in society? Are people completely infallible? People can be wrong. We accept that with politicians. Inflation was supposed to be transitory. That is disinformation and many people faced economic harm because of the political self-serving act of downplaying the impact, cause, and length of inflation. Now, we do see people and organizations held accountable for not knowing something regulators or lawyers say they should have known because of their titles or profession. But we forget this when convenient. There should be consequences if someone is purposefully putting out proven false information for a direct financial ill-gotten gain. Then it would clearly be fraud. But I am not sure that we should be up at arms simply because we disagree with something when the topic is still being researched, re-evaluated, or considered unsettled. Remember, for quite some time. The perception that the earth was flat was settled science. Until it was not anymore. I think it comes down to what our opinion of the truth is in life. For many, something is true if factually proven by evidence. And should be considered true until evidence proves otherwise. For others, truth is relative towards how they feel about the messenger. If they do not like the person or organization, they automatically feel that something said is a lie. And a few others hold the point of view that truth is relative to them. I will dub it as the self-serving truth. The idea being that if a person believes something to be true and acted based on their belief, then they cannot be wrong. So how should we view the truth in society? I will always default to truth being centered on the evidence, facts, and available data. Now, I can somewhat agree that one can view something as truth based on the evidence, facts, and available data that they are exposed to. For instance, we all know it is not ethical to file court filings when you knowingly know that you are being untruthful. 
people pleading not guilty to a crime they know they are guilty of is technically unethical and untruthful. But the legal difference would be that they are not guilty because they are hoping that a judge and jury will consider the set of facts, evidence, and data they present as more credible than the facts prosecutors, making their truth more convincing than the prosecutors. Or that law enforcement or the prosecutor acted in a manner that questioned whether justice is truly being served. So we are preconditioned in America to feel that there always is a different truth. Recall the famous line from Training Day from Denzel Washington, it is not what you know but what you can prove. As we do in all areas of society, we devalue truth based on whether others can prove we are telling the truth or lying. And society always wants to creep away from the morally absolute position that you are lying if you know you are being misleading even if others cannot prove it. I agree that people generally favor relative truth. Especially in a society that continually wants to separate responsibility from the person. We do not want to admit fault or try to exaggerate the impact of coinciding events. People always want to find that reasonable doubt. But not everything is a legal system. For instance, you may have a plausible excuse for being late to work. But your boss might not be moved by it or is unconvinced that the excuse actually played a role. Truth is not always absolute. Because facts, evidence, and data change over time. The important thing is that what is being sold as truth can be tied to an argument built around a set of facts, evidence, and data that also accounts for opposing views. I think we can agree that truth can be relative to the perspective and set of evidence that a person views the topic from. One person can support tax increases if they view our issues with government spending and national debt from the government perspective, while others viewing the same issue from the economic or taxpayer perspective will call for tax cuts. The real question is whether society should be enacting consequences for what some politicians claim is hate speech, misinformation, and disinformation. Or are they simply using the issue as a front for censorship that can be politically exploited to their future benefit? I am generally against censorship because I believe that the best approach to countering speech you find offensive or wrong is a substantive counter-speech. There needs to be standards that are consistent and limited. People do whatever they can to avoid responsibility, they also do anything they can to avoid having to counter a position. It is very convenient for people to claim that speech they oppose is hate speech, misinformation, or disinformation. When it may just be a difference of opinion. Misinformation is not really harmful since it is not purposeful. It is unintentional. Should someone be silenced or deplatformed because they said something or shared something with unintentional harm? Especially in a social media environment that is driven by emotion not truth? For disinformation, I do think it is up to the platforms to decide whether they want to enact consequences, but I am not sold on there being a statutory penalty. Censorship is much worse. For hate speech, the standard needs to be clarified and specific. I think we need to differentiate between speech that is harmless jokes and speech that is intended to direct harm to a specific group. All too often we use the buzzword hate speech too broadly. For instance, if white person disagrees or argues with a person of color, that does not reflect hate speech. If they intentionally call for direct harm to a specific group or specific person because of their association with that group, then it is more of an appropriate classification. I am also skeptical of too loosely applying consequences for speech. Many of these proponents for censorship really want to provide a convenient apparatus for addressing the opposition without debating or countering them. For instance, there were many progressive Democrats leaders complaining about efforts to censure fellow Democrat Adam Schiff. If these individuals truly felt that disinformation was a problem, then they should support the consequences for Schiff's frequent distortions. Also, I do not view it as a contradiction to free speech rights because Schiff was misleading the public in an official capacity and for a direct political purpose. 
he was intentionally making claims and offering misleading statements on news networks for a political agenda he was supporting. Now, let us discuss a strategic shift in how some companies are handling the workforce. Normally, if companies see a decline in demand for their products or services, executives will rebalance their organization. Meaning they will reduce the number of employees to better align revenues with the cost associated with serving that demand. The typical path forward is not the common path taken when the economic environment is not so typical anymore. This is something we are seeing right now, as employers experienced great difficulty recruiting employees during the pandemic and afterwards. Companies want to ensure that they are growing their margins or at least maintaining the same profitability when the overall market declines. Therefore, stock prices will continue to ascend, affording them continued access to capital to fuel growth and meet future targets. Businesses are generally cost-conscious. Producers want the lowest cost for the highest quality and the highest sale price to maximize profits. But does it really make sense in retaining the full slate of your employees when your demand is eroding from a business standpoint? It can in the short term while preparing for the long term. One article I read interviewed a business owner whose company Rebuilds Engines discussed how his team ramped up productivity during the pandemic and has been working at that level for quite some time. Workers with the needed skill set are hard to find so he increased his staff when possible. Even with the reduction in orders, the productivity rate still exceeded the 2019 numbers. So he is willing to make that investment because it is still better than the previous normal year and he is hopeful orders will increase in the future. That was an interesting point of view. Because typically you want to match your previous high or prior best year's numbers. But we must recognize that many organizations ran at a higher rate than in the past with less workers too. So the lower productivity compared to when they were running above capacity, but still higher than a typical year may be an ideal production level to address any quality concerns that crept up from the past and prepare teams for when demand does elevate. The pandemic forced many companies to do whatever it took to survive, serve the needs of customers whose needs are more urgent and less predictable, and resolve shortages and delays in production inputs and human capital. Workers had to contribute more than ever before and cover for the colleagues who refused to return to work. Make up for unfillable positions meant to stabilize workloads. Because, regardless of the headcount, customer orders still needed to be filled. So I do not blame any company that decides that it is alright to show the same loyalty their workers showed them as demand may drop. I do not blame companies that struggle to recruit talent for keeping that talent when the need lessens now after they finally recruited them. I would just hope that the ones that were there during the hard times are appreciated. More so than the ones who decided now is the time to jump back into the labor market because of the fear of a recession that has not materialized yet. The lesson I think we can glean from this situation is that companies should not take their workers for granted. Many workers have the willingness to sacrifice and contribute in challenging times. Sometimes companies value new workers more than the veterans. That is just bad management. Loyalty matters and the market shows that many workers are not loyal to perceived low-paying employers. A company can fairly compensate while holding workers to a high productivity standard at the same time. Those are not mutually exclusive. Now, let us shift a bit and discuss a new topic. I think we all support the idea that diversity is important to our society and that cultural diversity is a positive aspect of American society. We all agree that people should not be judged by the color of their skin, their gender, their religion, their political affiliation, or any other demographic category. But the progressive left is taking their view of diversity well beyond the realm of acceptability and normalcy. I have been consistent in my stance that you cannot fight hate with hate. And that is what progressives are doing when they want demographics to determine outcomes. When they combat the practices that create a divide in society by using the same practices in a different manner. When the political pendulum goes too far to either the right or the left, 
you usually see an effort to restore the balance a bit. And that is what you are seeing in this movement against the woke obsession. In theory, the idea that people should be aware of potential bias and seek to remove it to restore that meritocracy that we all truly want. But the problem is when you want to implement a system of bias where people find their way in society solely based on demographics, not on effort and ambition. I do think the race-baiting politicians go too far with their woke policy pushes. They see race over facts, evidence, and data, using claims of racism to prevent any substantive discussion on how to truly solve the issues plaguing some communities. Republicans are pushing back on the radical policy push with some great success. They have restored some level of sanity in the face of the mob hysteria. The woke obsession has had real-world negative consequences that make it more difficult to achieve that society where demographics no longer writes your ticket in life. There is no denying that racism is still a problem in the world. We saw the problem not that long ago in New York with a mass shooting that was deemed a supremacy event. Followed by a subway shooting that was a different kind of race event. America is the most diverse nation in the world. And still has issues with race. But we still are the top destination for migrants, both legal and illegal. So if America was this horrible racist society, these people would not flock to us from around the world? We cannot deny our past. But we should not deny our progress either. We have made progress with some areas or opportunities for improvement that still exist. We must also be honest and acknowledge that racism can be multidirectional. The woke crowd is not willing to acknowledge that when stories come out and the perpetrator looks a whole lot different than they were expecting. We must acknowledge that racism is not always the issue. Can people of two different demographic backgrounds have a disagreement? Or is it automatically racism? The facts, evidence, and data usually will tell you one way or another, not simply looking at the skin color, which is all those on the left need to see. The left has a natural arrogance in believing that society should accept their view as settled fact and that their radical policy proposals should be adopted without any debate. Otherwise you must be a raging racist if you disagree that demographics should determine what you are entitled to in this world. Most rational people believe effort is what should determine your outcomes. People have faced discrimination, which is a sin. But we cannot use discrimination to fight discrimination. We should be above that. I think some of these efforts do a disservice to the hard-working minority communities that contribute greatly to our economy, to our society, to our military, and to our American culture, where you paint a picture that we need programs that put us at the front of the line to succeed. I understand that there are people who get where they are in life because they found a loophole. But most of us achieve our success by pursuing the American dream not by chasing the victim's nightmare. I do think we have to address the real issues of racism and discrimination in our society. But if these progressives actually had the answer to solve racism and discrimination, then we must ask ourselves why are heavily blue states a major source of racism and discrimination? Surprised to see that a state well in the north like New York is reported to have a significant number of supremacy groups. And this sentiment is not hard to find amongst its population. I think we need to really have a national conversation about really finding common ground and stop obsessing over the differences that will cement permanent generational wedges. Not every problem was caused by discrimination. I agree that the left's obsession with seeing everything from the perspective of racism even when it does not truly exist is a problem. We want a society where people are judged not by the color of our skin but the content of our character. But the left wants to separate people from the responsibility and consequences of their choices and deflect blame to society all too often. There is a need to push back and focus on fighting real incidents of racism. The left paints with too broad of a brush in this regard while conveniently missing spots when it benefits them. 
but we do not want to stop short and allow people who hold hate in their heart and the willingness to do harm to be able to do so. For instance, we can say that the major issue with the whole woke problem in the first place was the completely irrational response where progressives accepted defunding the police as something to really do, where it gave space to the criminal element, which we are seeing impact our communities today. So how do we avoid making the same mistake in terms of our effort to weed out racism and other forms of discrimination? There needs to be clear standards, consistency, and acceptance. Clear standards of what we define as an incident of discrimination should be real and as direct as possible, should be consistent to consider offenses by all groups, not just one. And there needs to be an overall acceptance that judging people by the attributes they do not control is wrong. People give you plenty of other reasons to think they are defective. No need to use demographics. Just see their behaviors and attitudes. I think on the Republican side of the argument, it is important to acknowledge that diversity is an important goal. Otherwise, there is an easy pushback against the war on the woke. Society must understand that unity and acceptance is the proper path not tribalism. Tribes war with each other. That is a common problem throughout history. We all must want unity. Not woke. We do not want to go broke. Republicans struggle with culture issues and social issues in general because they expect the public to understand their intentions. Democrats do not want to debate on merits or substance, they want to just claim something is racist, someone is racist, and everything is racist. There are two ways to be perceived the winner on a topic. Argue with consideration of the complete set of facts, evidence, and current data, also known as the truth. Or base an argument on a select sample of data and make up that gap with hysteria and personal attacks. Appeal to one's intellect or their emotions. Democrats have mastered the art of evoking emotions to cover clear lack of substance in their arguments. That is why so many of them do not want to debate the critical issues of our time whether it is race relations, energy, or foreign policy. They will use red herring personal attacks in the hopes that people do not accept the opposing view or feel bad doing so. In a social media-driven society, Republicans cannot underestimate the effectiveness of this strategy as many people create ecosystems that only reinforce their view of the world. On many issues that tug at the heart, you have to consider the fact that there are obstacles to overcome and there is a need to communicate strategically and effectively. Something Republicans generally struggle with on social issues. While Republicans are rightfully pushing back on the areas of overreach with their war on woke, they need to avoid going too far and be marketed as racist by those who are not even reading the bills they are being told to attack. Finally, the area where some people feel is overreaction is the states that are pursuing bans of trans athletes to prevent the trans from competing in women's sports. There are well-known controversies with trans athletes dominating women competitors. While some have fallen short. While we are supposed to believe that there are no differences between a man and a woman, which there clearly are, we should acknowledge that on average men are generally stronger than women based on biology. That is why trans athletes are being required to reduce the level of testosterone. Should we care about this issue and why do the trans want to only compete against women and not enter the competitions involving men? One side of the argument is for inclusion for everyone. Right? Make people feel welcomed and not left out from what they want to do with their lives or just do at the moment. People can do what they want to do with their life. Freedom. Now our definition of freedom is that you can do whatever you want to do as long as it does not infringe on the freedom of another to do the same. Because if there is an infringement that cannot be negotiated, then that is when a third party or governing body will usually decide whose claim to that particular freedom outweighs the other. 
In this case, there is an infringement because there is a clear and obvious question of fairness when biological males are competing against biological females, skewing competitions. Even if they have the surgery and on the required drugs, they still may have an advantage over a biological woman that they cannot naturally overcome. Should a female athlete have to result in using steroids to simply have a reasonable chance at success? Because we could see performance-enhancing drugs being the balancing act here. Simply so they can compete against a surgery instead of drugs. If this is all about providing access, maybe we can compromise around a rule where trans athletes must compete against biological males. That would provide access while protecting women and fairness of women's sports. But I am sure there are few that would want to take that route. Imagine a contact sport like softball. And being part of play that typically results in a collision. Maybe a close play at the plate. Close play at second base or third base. I'm sure the trans athlete would have concerns that a biological male with testosterone running full speed poses a danger. That is the same imbalance in women's sports. If we truly believe that there are no other biological differences between men and women then you should not have any problem compromising with this rule. But we know that this would cause controversy. Now, I do get the counter-argument that rules are being implemented that will only apply to less than 2% of Americans. But really it takes only one bad encounter with someone stronger than you to change your future forever. It becomes a question of whose rights outweigh the other. And when you obsess over demographics and try to exploit different groups for political benefits, at some point you are going to have to balance the agenda of the new IT group with the agenda and needs of the one you are tossing aside. A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.